If I Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at Fispan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of If I Ran the Bank. As always, I'm your host, Clayton Weir, and I'm super excited for today's guest, Natalie Liu, who's a partner at Lightspeed Ventures. Um, for those of you who don't pay a lot of attention to the venture world, Lightspeed would be on, I would guess, almost anybody's list of kind of top five, top 10 brand name VCs in the, in the whole world globally. Um, probably been involved in most of the, you know, really important and material or a lot of the material venture deals of the last decade or so. Um, the reason that I invited Natalie on was I actually read a couple recent blog posts of hers um, that really kind of piqued my interest. One was about sort of the three big themes that she was seeing in the B2B sort of fintech world and how that was evolving. Um, And then more recently about the infrastructure side of the B2B fintech world and all these interesting platforms that are kind of emerging up to support all those different customer experiences she'd been writing about. So I personally really enjoyed the content, thought it was really engaging and and was kind of aligned loosely with my vision of how I think the world of of B2B fintech is going to play out. And I thought it would be really good and you could all benefit from hearing the story a little bit from the the horse's mouth, um, so to speak. That sounds like an offensive way to introduce somebody as the horse's mouth. Now I think about that, Natalie, but um, is that a, is that an okay representation of, 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 of who you are? Yeah. um, Thank you for the kind intro, Clayton. And just to fill in a little bit more background, um, I've been investing as a venture capitalist for the past eight years or so. And my career started at Y Combinator, where I worked with all kinds of startups um, in the software, consumer, and occasionally the fintech space. Um, I've kind of spent time in in all areas of, of various technology startups from software to frontier technology and, and have a background in applied physics um, and financial engineering. And I spent some time in my career as well as an investment banker and saw a lot of the inefficiencies kind of in the financial world. And at Lightspeed for the past two or three years, I've been um, focused more on the fintech investing side. And there are both Kind of applications as well as infrastructure around the payments ecosystem that we've seen really growing fast and um, it's really piqued my interest and uh, kind of resulted in writing some of the blog posts that you mentioned clayton so super excited to talk more today and and so just i guess to preface the the first part of this which was around the application layer or i guess more colloquially like the experience for small business owners and, and merchants and, and accountants and that kind of thing. I think you framed that conversation from your, um, your I guess, your life story previous to what, what you just said, which was, you know, growing up in and around the family sort of business and some somebody in your family had, had a tea shop, right? And just seeing some of the operational and financial tasks of like, and the pain in that business is like part of the lens that I think you invest through or how you kind of empathize with the, the customer on this. Yeah. So growing up, um, my family had a tea business, which represented many small businesses today where they're often strapped uh, for capital 
and are doing things by the day um, where it depends on inventory levels, it depends on demand from customers and kind of daily or weekly sales impact the liquidity of the business. So we've been seeing a lot of these um, applications that are trying to disrupt what traditional banks offer in more of a kind of digital banking appeal. So for example, one of our portfolio companies called Bluevine is a digital B2B lender and their mission is to really offer small businesses um, better underwriting capabilities and do it in a completely digital way to offer businesses loans more efficiently. So um, these are one of the ways that different startups are helping businesses um, with obtaining capital and also uh, being able to run their businesses more efficiently. Um, And that's on the lending side, but there are actually other applications that are benefiting various businesses as well. I mean, even another company of ours called Trip Actions um, launched um, an expense management card. And Trip Actions actually was founded as an online travel agency. But given the significant amount of spend that some businesses have around travel, it makes a lot of sense that while you're traveling or even not traveling, you have daily business expenses and you'd want to reconcile that all digitally. Um, in a very easy to use kind of online software platform. So they actually um, launched uh, an expense management card called TripActions Liquid as well. Um, And yeah, I think it it just inspires me to invest in this category, um, mainly because of the history that I have with my family, having been in a small business that could really benefit from tools such as these, whether it's lending, better expense management, or digital bookkeeping to save us a lot of time and give us more time to actually run the business. Um, And from kind of across the, the various investments that I've made. I've made about 10 investments at Lightspeed, ranging from kind of enterprise software to gaming to fintech. Um, it's it's really fascinating to me to invest in some more of these fintech businesses that are actually helping uh, various other businesses today. No, to, to, totally, totally makes sense. So just, I mean, maybe just the backup to the one you mentioned. So Bluevine is obviously what I would call a full stack fintech, right? They they're going direct, doing their customer acquisition, trying to sign up businesses um, for their offering. Do you want to maybe just characterize a little bit more about like the types of you know merchants or businesses that they target, whether it's you know a size or a vertical, and and some of the ways that they kind of you know compete or differentiate on that? Yeah, Bluevine um, initially served small businesses of any kind. So it could have been businesses such as my family's tea business. Um, it could be a restaurant. It could be a small startup as well, but it, they're not focused on a particular category. I think what's great about Bluevine is that they're really a horizontal platform for digital lending. Um, very similar to how a traditional bank would approach it. I think mean, a traditional bank might look at every business um, for their financial statements and then decide whether or not they want to issue a loan. Um, Bluevine is able to do that a lot faster, just given their um, their technology foundation. You know, is there, you know, sort of the dimension, I guess, of, of, of how they're competitive? Is it is there kind of unique and advantage things they do on the underwriting side, or is it just the sort of removal of friction from the whole experience of like, you know, 
getting a loan? Like what's the, what's kind of important in, in the way they differentiate themselves? Yeah. I mean, I can use a, a real life example in that, um, uh, my mother who still runs our, one of our family businesses today, um, had to apply for a PPP loan during the pandemic. Um, thousands of businesses, probably if not all businesses applied for a PPP loan during the pandemic. And one of the p- biggest problems was that uh, the wait list was incredibly long. You would um, apply for a loan with one of the big banks, but then they would give bigger companies the loans first uh, because there was more information available about some of these larger public companies. Um, and it just made it easier to underwrite them. However, for small businesses where a lot of their financial statements or maybe their brand isn't as well known because they are a small local company, uh, many of them who actually need these loans the most weren't able to get these loans approved from the big banks, mostly because of the lagging technology of the traditional banks. So um, after my mother experienced that applying for the actual PPP loan, she got rejected or in the kind of queue um, and never heard back from Wells Fargo, which is actually the bank that we use. And instead um, she applied to another digital bank, very similar to Blue Vine and was approved within a couple of weeks. So I think it just shows the power of digital underwriting and um, for a company like Blue Vine or uh, others such as like Cross River Bank and their even Cabbage was another digital lender that offered loans. Um, they're able to just process the information so quickly. No, it to- totally makes sense. Um, and be interesting to watch that as it evolves over time. So the other um, option, you know, sorry, the other portfolio company you mentioned in your intro is kind of interesting to me, right? So obviously one of the core, uh, I think two of the core tenets of your blog post that I read was one was around kind of, you know, automating financial operations and one was around like how embedded sort of payments and, and fintech activities becoming. And I mean, the trip actions is really interesting because as you said, I mean, they would have identified as a, you know, an OTA probably at the start, right? Like an online travel agency, but the reality is they've baked in all of this sort of money movement and processing over time to solve, you know, the true operational pain of how a business, you know, kind of pays and, and controls. The, the travel spend, like that strikes me as a their journey probably being really representative of the zeitgeist of, of this sort of more recent wave of fintech companies, right? That maybe weren't really fintech companies when they started, but have become so to truly solve an operational problem for their, their customers. Yeah. A phenomenon that we're seeing is um, financial services being embedded into traditional software companies. So um, while TripActions was initially just an OTA. They actually now have embedded payment cards. Um, Companies such as Shopify as well, that was initially a place where you could host your website, start your business storefront, and then allow your customers to to buy um, from your website more easily is now also offering further kind of embedded financial solutions, whether it's also lending to small businesses or other kind of things that maybe another bank would have done, uh, but because they have such a close relationship with the business already, they're offering these embedded financial services. So 
One of the companies that I'm really excited about in our portfolio is called Phoenix Payments, um, which uh, I like to be invested in last year. And their whole mission is to help vertical software businesses that serve other businesses um, give the optimal payments interface. So a real example of that is one of their um, customers called Club Essential, which is a a software platform for country clubs. There are a lot of payments involved in managing people's membership. Maybe the country club has various um, things on site that accept payments and they want to be able to, um, in an easy kind of software interface, allow these country clubs to manage their business because that is how they run the operations. And Phoenix is this modular payments API that allows any software platform that wants to integrate payments to do that in the most efficient way. Because every business, whether it's Shopify, Club Essential, or another company that works with Phoenix um, called Toast, uh, which serves restaurants, they may have specific needs for what kind of payment infrastructure they want to build and show to their end customers. So they really need a modular platform like Phoenix to engage with the processors directly and onboard merchants easily. Um, so that's kind of a trend that we're seeing as well, is that every software company is thinking about integrating payments. Um, there's a huge demand to hire engineers who can wrangle with payments. And um, we're excited about just the software companies that are serving that need because it's very hard to hire engineers who can wrangle with payments. And instead they are turning a lot to various payment software companies to help make this possible. And it strikes me, I mean, I don't know a ton about Phoenix or Phoenix, sorry, but the, uh, what strikes me part of the value proposition for them is if we go more broadly, right? If you're sort of, you know, two people in a garage starting your startup, um, and you need to accept payments on the internet, you're going to go to something historically out of the box like Stripe where with the least amount of code and probably more importantly with the least amount of knowledge about how payments work, you can start accepting money right away. And so that's what everybody would do, right? And what Shopify would have done at the start. But over time, um, you're paying in full to that service provider for the economics of processing those payments and making it as easy as possible. And at some point, your business and you know the scale of transaction processing would grow to a point where um, both those economics maybe don't make sense to you anymore and you'd like to be able to participate in a broader part of the profit pool, but also I'm guessing your general flexibility about different things you want and need to do because your own use cases have grown at scale. And so something like I think Phoenix is meant to give you a lot more fun, you know, optionality over your life cycle as the like application or the platform owner and developer, both on the economic and on the technical side, having a wider tool set to pull from. Is that is that a fair encapsulation? Yeah, I think it's generally the case that um, uh, a platform like Phoenix wants to allow a company that has reached some amount of scale to customize and optimize their payment strategy. And for that reason, um, last year, Phoenix actually announced a new product called Phoenix Flex, which is catered towards those smaller companies, as you mentioned, who are looking for an easier way to integrate payments quickly. But the beauty of Phoenix Flex and their core enterprise product is that 
it would be easier to migrate the information from Phoenix Flex to becoming a Phoenix kind of enterprise customer because it's within the Phoenix ecosystem already and it's behind kind of Phoenix's own database. So that is something that they've uh, more recently come with um, to offer startups, like you just said, you know, people in a garage are just starting to get thinking about integrating payments. Um, whereas um, a platform like Stripe is really catered towards um, those startups. But at a certain point, when companies reach scale, such as you know, there's these trending e-commerce businesses that have grown really fast, um, a lot of software companies that start to embed payments actually experience accelerated growth once they integrate payments. That's really what Phoenix is catering toward is that assuming that these software businesses that start small start to grow to a certain scale and reach over 100 million or even a billion of payments volume per year, then it starts to make sense to optimize and customize your payment strategy. Um, and that and that's really what they're trying to offer is this easy graduation path um, from being, I want to enable payments and just get up and running to, I actually want to be very conscientious about my payment strategy, figure out how to give my merchants the best experience possible. No, that makes makes complete sense. And so on that note, going back to thinking about like a different sort of platform player that is would strike me as maybe having the potential to become an, an accidental sort of fintech. Um, there's a portfolio company of yours called Fair, which I don't know a ton about, but I'm pretty sure is a like a B2B e-commerce marketplace and is is optimized around certain types of transactions. Do you want to maybe just you know, introduce kind of what, what they are and, and what their business is all about and, and maybe some of the ways that like somebody like that would be thinking about embedded fintech as, you know, part of part of their business longer term. Yeah, absolutely. So um, FAIR is a wholesale B2B marketplace. So using my family's business as an example, once more, um, imagine that my family's tea business was on FAIR. And there are restaurants that want to buy our tea and serve it in their, um, in their restaurant to their customers. Um, so we can be listed as a supplier on the FAIR network. And then the actual boutique stores or stores that are se selling it to actual individual customers um, would be the buyers on the platform of FAIR. And they would buy from us as a supplier. So that's really what FAIR is all about is it. Um, when you and I, you know, Natalie and Clayton are buying from a store as an individual consumer, we go to a storefront um, and we don't know where those stores get their supplies. They can go to a place like Fair and actually get um, their supplies directly from brands. And, you know, it's so interesting, right? Because the totality of how B2B sort of um, commercial interactions work today you know the idea of like you know a net 30 invoice and discount for early payment and, and you know credit terms and those kinds of things between businesses like they all those are all relics of the way that businesses would have bought and sold stuff at wholesale like in the olden days right um in a paper-based world and in a closed loop you know, nothing would have remotely been had the power of like a closed loop network like that. So the ability to like having you know, real time kind of structured data and context and, you know, having a perspective on, you know, buyers and sellers and who's, you know, 
who's credit worthy and things like that. And the ability to solve like broader kind of, you know, reconciliation and operational jobs on the edge of a platform like that. Like it just strikes me as a whole different way from if I was distributing financial services to businesses, like the opportunities to add value in and around ecosystem like that are unprecedented because none of that was ever digital. Those kinds of transactions, they were on the fax machine until quite recently. Yeah, absolutely. The way things are done with that fair is that usually, um, you know, I'll use that boutique store and my family Steven as kind of the, the two parties in this, but before, um, these boutique stores would have their own way of keeping track of their suppliers. That could be through spreadsheets, their own kind of bespoke software solution that they decide to use, and they can manually keep track of their supplier list. But the problem is that there's another boutique store across the street or thousands of boutique stores or just end stores that consumers walk into around the world. Whatever system that they're using, be it spreadsheets or the software platform, they're not talking to each other. And because of that, um, it's harder to discover various suppliers. And also, when you actually come around to paying the suppliers, you don't pay for them until after you receive the goods. And that can take a while. If you're a wholesale supplier, it might take a couple of weeks for you to send supplies to the merchant. And then it might take another month, net 30 terms, as you pointed out, for the merchant to pay the supplier. And in that time frame, from the moment the supplier gets the order, it could take 45 or more days um, to get paid for the goods that they're actually going to send out. And that really gives um, suppliers uh, a headache because they're so crunched. Um, there's a huge delay when they get the payment versus actually having to buy and acquire the inventory and sell that out to merchants. So um, that's another powerful thing that FAIR does is that they are the intermediary party that makes sure that the supplier gets paid in a shorter time frame and can facilitate that payment digitally um, so that suppliers can continue to find more customers and run their business on time. No, I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. I think it's really, really interesting space to watch. And I, I think there's going to be just bottomless opportunity in it. So I guess there's two ways to pivot here. And, and so one thing you mentioned, right, was just knowing about who you're doing business with and transacting there. And that was something interesting that we had talked about offline. So obviously the totality of these in, types of experience innovations, right, or all this value that can accrue to these, you know, merchants and small business owners. Um, some of it's just technological, right, like making nice experiences around, you know, these payments and, and the way data moves. But ultimately, from my perspective, one of the biggest friction points in delivering these financial services, especially to businesses in anything that feels like a remotely quick or easy or frictionless way, um, identity is a big aspect of this, right? So one of the reasons that there's so many forms at the bank when you go to do anything is there's this big burden on know your customer, um, know your business, know the counterparties that you're transacting with. And, and like historically, it's felt to me like there hasn't been as much innovation there, certainly not on the business side. And you kind of told me that you feel there's a little bit of an awakening going on there offline. Do you want to maybe you know dive in there and, and, and talk about that? that space a little bit, especially how that is going to be, yeah, I think part of 
um, or one of the catalysts on this, all this innovation in sort of B2B financial services? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, for thousands of years, commerce was done in person. You give somebody currency in person, say that's cash, and they give you the goods right then and there. And the trust is that you see the money and it's being delivered to you instantly. And as the wave of e-commerce has grown, um, there's been a huge reliable reliability on digital payments. And you're trusting this middleman who is some software platform that the funds will get delivered to you as the merchant uh, and be pulled from the end consumer who's buying the goods from you. So uh, an important aspect of digital commerce and payments is this concept of trust and safety and verifying one's identity. Um, we're seeing a lot of new startups emerge in this space that are doing um, identity verification and KYC in a fully digital way. And they are kind of existing alongside the legacy players right now. And in some cases, replacing legacy players who've historically offered uh, KYC services. So um, I think one of the companies that uh, I find pretty interesting is a company called Persona. Um, the founding team came out of Square and Dropbox. And they have dealt with um, identity issues at Square. Because at Square, they are verifying merchants at scale and also the end consumers at scale. So um, Persona is able to aggregate a bunch of different data providers kind of in the identity verification space, as well as offer their own proprietary identity verification technology and kind of bring best of breed technology together to offer software platforms the ability to quickly onboard people. Because um, these various uh, fintech apps, or even a customer like DoorDash that uses Persona, they spend lots of marketing dollars on acquiring drivers as well as the end consumers who use DoorDash. And what's important is balancing attracting and acquiring people top of funnel and also getting them onboarded onto the platform. That barrier is the identity verification and KYC layer. And that's what Persona manages for DoorDash. Um, it is a modular platform that brings together these various data sources and best practices around onboarding um, and delivering that as a product to various companies such as DoorDash and Instacart and even Brex. Um, so I think that's another wave that we're seeing in how these digital finance companies, whether they're actual fintech companies or companies that have some sort of transactional layer to it, is where they're disrupting traditional financial services, is that they're not only able to do things digitally, but they're able to onboard and verify people quickly and accurately. No, it totally makes sense. You mentioned another one to me offline. I can't think of the name right now. It looked really interesting. It was it was looked like a relatively new company as well, but it had a neat offering around validating business identities online. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Persona is a bit more focused on the consumer, uh, on verifying consumers. But another company that um, we've seen is called Middesk, and they verify businesses. So um, 
some of the kind of older companies in the space are um, Dun and Bradstreet, which has a huge database of business information that they manually update uh, into their database. And what Mindest is doing is a um, it's also offered via an API platform that allows um, a company like Bluevine, for example, which is a B2B lender that has to verify businesses. Um, they use Mindesk to verify information about various businesses, um, to actually understand the language that's being discussed on their website, to understand what kind of business that they are, to see if whether or not Bluevine would want to issue the company a loan. So, um, there, there are really two kind of parties of identity. There's the KYC, which is now your customer, and there's KYB, which is now your business. So we're seeing that there are startups in both of these categories. No, I think that's really exciting. I mean, I think there's just bottomless potential in that and to move beyond just even the verification of, hey, this is business XYZ and they actually own it and these are who the beneficial owners are to, I assume, in the future that that people are going to want, um, you know, that even business owners are going to want to know more about who their counterparties are, whether it's their wholesale customers or suppliers, you know, there might be other attributes that you start to see people be able to make judgment on, right? You know, is this a sustainable provider? Is this, you know, a living wage employer or whatever it might be? Um, I think just more knowledge is more power. And I think it's going to absolutely change relationships between between businesses going forward. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And so just one other company. So, I mean, if we just, I, I know we kind of ended up uh, jumping from lily pad to lily pad here through the pond, but um, if I had to try and sum up what we're talking about a little bit, and I just wanted to lead into talking about at least one more kind of company that's sort of in your orbit. There's obviously all of these, you know, there's this unique, intersection emerging of layering financial services into, you know, or embedding them in the solving of operational problems for businesses, right? And so that's, you know, what I think we call the application layer. As a second order effect of that, there's this new infrastructure layer emerging to power those, right? And so, you know, Phoenix is one you mentioned, um, even this, you know, these tools in Persona or Mindex would be part of that. There's probably a wide range of other you know, sort of server side or, or infrastructure businesses and, and probably even unmet opportunities, right, for, for dozens of other businesses that don't exist to enable that. Um, there's been this proliferation of kind of these embedded blank banking type type platforms. I know you guys have made a recent investment in, in one entity in that space, I think called Sinterra. Do you want me to just walk us through, you know, some of what, what they do or what you think the, how you think that market's going to play out in terms of these um you know, infrastructure banking as a service type players and 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 where that market's going and, and why you guys are, are excited about that space. Yeah. Yeah. Banking as a service is a really broad catch-all term. And now there's BAS, right? B-A-A-S. Um, and the reality is that banking as a service encompasses many different things because banks do many different things. Banks allow you to open bank accounts. They also lend you money. They also allow you to um, get a mortgage. They also allow you to um, do open up corporate cards for uh, if if you're a business bank, right? And we're just seeing that there are fintech infrastructure companies that are trying to do all of the things that banks are currently doing. So what Singtera does 
um, they aspire to be um, kind of a marketplace that allows companies that want to embed financial services to connect with various other offerings in that broader banking as a service space. However, Sinterra offers a lot of this stuff uh, natively. So they're starting with offering um, account opening as a service because many uh, digital financial companies may want to have customer accounts living on the platform. And currently that's where Singtera focuses, but they aspire to be that broader based platform that offers more kind of digital banking as a service. No, that's that's interesting. So they, they're viewing the opportunity to both have first party services and sell to a developer, but to marketplace and aggregate for different edge things or where having like multiple suppliers might be the best practice or whatever for the for the actual developer to, to be able to do that kind of with one API, so to speak. Yeah, that's. I think that's a good representation of what Singtera does, as well as um, they vet various infrastructure vendors and may partner with them and um, delivers a product where they're using another infrastructure provider under the hood um, to kind of complement where Singtera thinks that their customer needs. So Singtera may build additional technology combined with something a vendor might provide in order to offer some aspect of a banking as a service to their end customer. Uh, it's going to be super interesting to see how that market um, sort of rolls out over time, right? As it matures, I guess we're really in the early, early is the days of that, but um, there's going to be some massive businesses, I think, you know, a decade down the line here in that space. I think we're sort of getting towards the end of time. Is there anything any sort of closing thoughts from your perspective, Natalie? Is there anything, is there a question you wished I would ask you? Is there, do you have a burning sort of insight that you're, you're sitting on now or anything else to share? Yeah, you know, um, as an investor in fintech as well as payment infrastructure, an area that I've been looking more into um, this year has been cryptocurrency, especially around crypto money. Um, Crypto is a pretty big category, so I won't get into all of it, but there are specific applications of the blockchain as well as cryptocurrency that are really disrupting how traditional financial services are being done. Um, there are now ways to accept cryptocurrency as a payment using stable coins and do instant settlement. Um, there are also ways to offer lending at a higher yield to customers who are willing to um, adopt cryptocurrency. There's also just various forms of institutional adoption that we're seeing of the crypto world. And that's another area that I think um, is kind of the frontier of fintech right now um, that I've been spending more time with. So if I ran the bank, I would certainly uh, ask them to look more into the cryptocurrency space. No, that's interesting. And, and so, I mean, yeah, it sort of seems like we're probably at the point in this sort of crypto and blockchain hype cycle where we're post peak hype and the the very tangible applications that, that are going to be the defining ones of that paradigm are either, you know, have been being quietly worked on for the last couple of years or are currently quietly being worked on. And we're going to start to see the very like unsexy, but more widespread adoption of, of some of those things. In, in, in these like more boring, you know, applications, you know, that we're talking about, like kind of B2B and um, financial services and some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, 
it might sound boring, I think, from a, maybe from, you know, you and I are consumers, everybody is a consumer in the end of the day, and it's easier to kind of wrap your head around something that you and I interact with ourselves. Um, but the reality is that B2B payments are multiples larger than consumer payments. And for that reason, I'm pretty excited about the various companies that are working on B2B payments. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. I'm uh, super excited about the same. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Natalie, and, and sharing your thoughts. Um, uh, really appreciate that. Thanks to everyone for listening. As always, you can uh, feel free to subscribe anywhere you get your, your podcasts. And if you have any questions, never hesitate to email info at fispan.com. Um, comments, concerns, questions, whatever. Thanks again, uh, everybody listening. Thanks, Natalie, again for your time. We'll see you all next time. Thanks, Clayton.